Well, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. <clears throat> Excuse me. And welcome to another edition of God Honest Truth live stream. We are God Honest Truth, and we are a Messianic ministry based out of Western North Carolina. And if you'd like to find out more about us, please go to www.godhonesttruth.com. There you can find ways to contact us, all our social media profiles, all our video platforms that we're a part of, as well as the audio podcasting platforms. <clears throat> Excuse me. In addition, you can also find many resources to help you in your learning and your faith, as well as your Hebrew learning. So go check that out at www.godhonesttruth.com. And as always, if you need to contact us for any reason, the best way to contact us is through email at team at godhonesttruth.com. Now tonight's Josh is going to be one that could be considered controversial among some circles. I mean, what does Noah, David, the Levite priest, Yeshua, Paul, Timothy, what do all these have in common? They all have to do in some way or another with alcohol. And tonight's drosh is going to be all about what does the Bible say about alcohol? We're going to be getting into lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of scripture. So it's going to be a long drosh with lots of slides. But have your notes ready, and we really hope you enjoy. And stay tuned for that drosh. But before that, of course, we're going to be doing our liturgy. We're going to be doing the Torah portion, Haf Torah portion, and Brit Hadashah portion for this week. Because as always, the Word of God is much greater and much more important than any word of man or any drosh that is created by man. So, with all that being said, let's go ahead and dive right into our liturgy. Cold Ah, tik va bach no talpaim. Lahi yo tam koshi. Beharte nu. Eret zion verushalayim. Lahi yo tam koshi. Beharte nu. Eret. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod, Malhuto Leolam Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is for eternity. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
And have these words which I command you this day be upon your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and let them be frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house, and upon your gates. So in the way of announcements this week, we just want to remind everyone to go check out our social media links as well as our new Reddit forum that we've uh, just did several weeks ago. That is reddit.com forward slash messianics with an S on the end of that. So go check it out, start a discussion, take part in the discussion, but just be part of the community. Now, like always, we're going to give you our upcoming episodes for the, about the next two months or so. And tonight's Drosh, of course, is going to be all about what does the Bible say about alcohol. Next week, another very important Drosh, definitely tune in next week, uh, as well as every week. But next week, our Drosh is going to be about what is salvation. Because certain groups, certain denominations, certain churches define and use the term salvation in different ways. But we want to get to what Scripture says salvation is. So make sure to stay tuned, or I'm sorry, make sure to tune in next week and every week on Fridays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for each of these drashes. And here's your list of upcoming Moedim or feast days for the next upcoming year. And of course, our next upcoming Moedim is going to be Purim, and that starts at sunset on March 6th and runs through sunset of March 7th. Now, once again, I just want to remind you that we'll be having a drosh on Purim about two weeks or so before the actual feast day. So if you'd like to learn more, make sure to tune in to that drosh on Purim to learn about the history, the customs, the food, the symbols, all that good stuff. That's going to occur about two weeks before the holiday of Purim. And as always, if you have any prayer requests or announcements that you would like to have announced live on air, Make sure to have those in to us by Thursday evening at the latest, because we do go live on Friday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. So, with all that being said, let's get back to our liturgy. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. He walked among us, filled with your Spirit the only one who ever perfectly fulfilled your Torah. He healed the sick and raised the dead. The multitudes of our people sought his touch. He taught as no man taught. With authority he brought forth the treasures of the Torah. How the children sought him, the lepers he touched and made clean. How the despised and outcast found love and release from their sin. How the hypocrites feared him, whose words uncovered their sin, despised and rejected, acquainted with grief, he bore the sins of Israel. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, turned every one to his own way. Our iniquities were laid upon the king, the sins of the world, his burden to bear. He rose from the dead and opened the way to life everlasting. Praise his name. We are in him, his spirit and powers. New life is ours with joy and peace. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, who has given us Messiah, our King. 
For the sake of our Master Yeshua, in His merit and virtues, may the sayings of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be favorable before you, O Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer. Amen. Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, Nikadesh Shemcha. Tavo Mehutecha, Yesa Retonecha. Baaretz Kaasher, Naasa Vashemayim. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let thy kingdom come, let thy will be done, as on earth, so as in heaven. Ten lanu hayom, lechem hukenu. Uselach lanu, erashmatenu ka asher. Sulechim anachnu, la asher ashmulanu. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Ve'al tevienu lide masa, ki im hatzilenu min hara. Ki lacha, hamam lacha, vahagavura, vahatifaret. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. None can compare to you, O Lord, and nothing compares to your creation. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your mercy endures throughout all generations. The Lord is King, the Lord was King, the Lord shall be King throughout all time. May the Lord grant His people mercy, may the Lord bless His people with peace. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me, let us exalt Him together. And it came to pass, whenever the ark went forth, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. May those who hate you flee from before you. For from Zion shall go forth the Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Blessed be he who in holiness gave the Torah to his people Israel. All right, and tonight's Torah portion is going to be Exodus chapter 29, verses 1 through 46. And like always, we'll give you just a moment to find that in your preferred translation at home if you'd like to read along with us. Exodus chapter 29 Verses 1 through 46. And this is the task you shall do to them to set them apart to serve me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams, perfect ones, and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. Make these of wheat flour. And you shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket along with the bull and the two rams. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tent of appointment and wash them with water. And you shall take the garments and shall put on Aaron the long shirt and the robe of the shoulder garment and the shoulder garment and the breastplate and shall gird him with the embroidered band of the shoulder garment 
and shall put the turban on his head, and shall put the set-apart sign of dedication on the turban, and shall take the anointing oil, and pour it on his head, and anoint him. <clears throat> then you shall bring his sons, and put long shirts on them, and shall gird them with girdles, Aaron and his sons, and put the turbans on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs for an everlasting law. So you shall ordain Aaron and his sons, and you shall bring near the bull before the tent of appointment. And Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull, and you shall slay the bull before Yahweh by the door of the tent of appointment, and take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the slaughter place with your finger, and pour all the blood beside the base of the slaughter place. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, and the appendage on the liver, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them, and burn them on the slaughter place. But the flesh of the bull, and its skin, and its dung, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. And take one ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall slay the ram, and you shall take its blood, and sprinkle it all around on the slaughter place. And cut the ram in pieces, and wash its entrails and its legs, and place them upon its pieces and on its head. And you shall burn the entire ram on the slaughter place. It is an ascending offering to Yahweh. It is a sweet fragrance, an offering made by fire to Yahweh. And you shall take the second ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall slay the ram, and take some of its blood, and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and on the tip of the right ear of his sons, on the thumb of their right hand, and on the big toe of their right foot, and sprinkle the blood all around on the slaughter place. And you shall take some of the blood that is on the slaughter place, and some of the anointing oil, and sprinkle it on Aaron, and on his garments, and on his sons, and on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be set apart, and his sons and the garments of his sons with him. And you shall take the fat of the ram, and the fat tail, and the fat that covers the entrails, and the appendage on the liver, and the two kidneys, and the fat on them, and the right thigh, it is for a ram of ordination, and one loaf of bread, and one cake made with oil, and one thin cake made from, <clears throat> I'm sorry, and one thin cake from the basket of the unleavened bread that is before Yahweh. And you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and you shall wave them, a wave offering before Yahweh. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the slaughter place as an ascending offering, as a sweet fragrance before Yahweh. It is an offering made by fire to Yahweh. And you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it, a wave offering before Yahweh, and it shall be your portion. And from the ram of ordination you shall set apart the breast of the wave offering which is waved, and the thigh of the contribution which is raised, of that which is for Aaron, and of that which is for his sons. And it shall be from the children of Israel for Aaron and his sons by law forever. For it is a contribution. And it is a contribution from the children of Israel, from the slaughters of their peace offerings, their contribution to Yahweh. And the set-apart garments of Aaron are for his sons after him, to be anointed in them and to be ordained in them. The priest from his sons in his place puts them on for seven days when he enters the tent of appointment to attend in the set-apart place. And take the ram of ordination and cook its flesh in a set-apart place. 
And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tent of appointment. And they shall eat those offerings with which the atonement was made to ordain them to set them apart. But let a stranger not eat them because they are set apart. And if any of the flesh of the ordination offerings or of the bread be left over until the morning, then you shall burn up what is left over. It is not eaten because it is set apart. And so you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all I have commanded you. Seven days you shall ordain them, and prepare a bull each day as a sin offering for atonement. And you shall cleanse the slaughter place when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint to it <clears throat> I'm sorry, and you shall anoint to it set it apart. For seven days you shall make atonement for the slaughter place and set it apart. And the slaughter place shall be most set apart. Whatever touches the slaughter place is to be set apart. And this is what you prepare on the slaughter place. Two lambs a year old, daily, continually. Prepare the one lamb in the morning, and the other lamb you prepare between the evenings. And one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil, and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering with the one lamb. And prepare the other lamb between the evenings. And with it, prepare the grain offering and the drink offering, as in the morning, for a sweet fragrance, an offering made by fire to Yahweh, a continual ascending offering for your generations at the door of the tent of appointment before Yahweh, where I shall meet with you to speak with you. And there I shall meet with the children of Israel, and it shall be set apart by my esteem. And I shall set the, apart the tent of appointment and the slaughter place, and Aaron and his sons I have set apart to serve as priests to me. And I shall dwell in the midst of the children of Israel, and shall be their Elohim, and they shall know that I am Yahweh their Elohim, who brought them up out of the land of Mitzrayim to dwell in their midst. I am Yahweh their Elohim. Baruch Yahweh Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu Tuarte Met, Vichaye Olam Vetukenu, Baruch Yahweh, Noten HaTorah. Amen. This is the Torah which Moses placed before the children of Israel. It is in accord with the Lord's command by the hand of Moses. It is a tree of life to those who take hold of it, and those who support it are praiseworthy. Its ways are ways of pleasantness, and all its paths are peace. Bring us back, Lord, to you, and we shall come. Renew our days as of old. Etzayim hi, lama hazim kimba, vetomeha meushar, deraheha, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, 
who has chosen faithful prophets to speak words of truth. Amen. All right, and tonight's Haftorah portion is going to be Isaiah chapter 61, verse 7, through chapter 62, verse 5. And we'll give you just a moment to find that in your preferred translation at home if you'd like to read along with us. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 7, through chapter 62, verse 5. Instead of your shame and reproach, they rejoice a second time in their portion. Therefore, they take possession a second time in their land. Everlasting joy is theirs. For I, Yahweh, love right ruling. I hate robbery for ascending offering. And I shall give their reward in truth and make an everlasting covenant with them. And their seed shall be known among the nations, and their offspring in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the seed Yahweh has blessed. I greatly rejoice in Yahweh, my being exults in my Elohim, for he has put garments of deliverance on me. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the seed to shoot up, so the master Yahweh causes righteousness and praise to shoot up before all the nations. For Zion's sake I am not silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I do not rest, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her deliverance as a lamp that burns. And the nations shall see your righteousness, and all sovereigns your esteem. And you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of Yahweh designates. And you shall be a crown of comeliness in the hand of Yahweh, and a royal headdress in the hand of your Elohim. No longer are you called forsaken, and no longer is your land called deserted. But you shall be called Hephzibah, and your land married. For Yahweh shall delight in you, and your land be married. For as a young man marries a maiden, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your Elohim rejoice over you. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, <clears throat> King of the universe, who has given us the living word in Messiah Yeshua. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the renewed covenant. Amen. And tonight's Brit Hadashah portion is going to be Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. And one more time, we'll give you just a moment to find that in your preferred translation at home. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting for him, because of whom all are, and through whom all are, in bringing many sons to esteem, to make the prince of their deliverance perfect through sufferings. For both he who sets apart, and those who are being set apart, are all of one, 
for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I shall announce your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I shall sing praise to you. And again I shall put my trust in him. And again, see, I am the children whom Elohim gave me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself similarly shared in the same, so that by means of his death he might destroy him, having the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver those who throughout life were held in slavery by fear of death. For doubtless he does not take hold of messengers, but he does take hold of the seed of Abraham. So in every way he had to be made like his brothers in order to become a compassionate and trustworthy high priest in matters related to Elohim to make atonement for the sins of the people. For in what he had suffered, himself being tried, he is able to help those who are tried. Baruch Yahweh Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Hadvar Haimet Vechaye Olam Betukenu Baruch Yahweh Noten Habrit Hadasha Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who gave to us the word of truth and planted life everlasting in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the renewed covenant. Amen. All right, so in just a moment, we're going to be doing tonight's drosh, all about what the Bible says about alcohol. But like always, we're going to take just a short break and check on our live streams. Now, if you're not familiar, we are multi-streaming to YouTube, Twitch, and Odyssey. So if you can't find us on one or if you don't like us on one particular one, you do have options. You can always go and check out another video platform to watch us there as well. Now, during this break, let's go ahead and go down below and let us know what it is that you think the Bible says about alcohol and the consumption of it or not consuming it or what have you. What kind of traditions regarding this subject did you kind of grow up with? What were you taught in the faith that you came from or your traditions? Just let us know down in the comments. It's always interesting to see different people's backgrounds and where they came from as to where they are now. Also, while you're down there, make sure to hit that like button, hit the subscribe button, as well as ring that bell so that you're notified every time that we go live or when we upload a new on-demand video. And also hit that share button and share it around with your friends, your family, your colleagues, co-workers, or who have you. Because odds are right now, if you're watching this, then there's going to be someone within your circle that's also going to enjoy this type of content. And we really, really do appreciate every time that you spread the word about God Honest Truth Ministries, because word of mouth advertising is by far the best and has been the best for many hundreds and even thousands of years. So we really, really do appreciate it when you share the word about God Honest Truth Ministries. So there we go. So, like I said, tonight's drosh is going to be all about what the Bible says about alcohol. Now, before we get into it, we realize this is going to be a controversial subject for some people. This is one of those 
beliefs and doctrines from the Bible that some people are really set in already. And if anybody goes against it, they kind of get their toes stepped on. So if you're not someone who is at least willing to hear an open-minded presentation about this subject, you might want to go ahead and turn it off now. Also, there are more than 60 slides in this drosh. So it's going to be a rather lengthy one. However, that's okay, because if you need to leave for some reason, you can always come back and rewatch the on-demand version starting tomorrow morning. Just go to our website, GodHonestTruth.com, and you'll find the post right there on the main page for this drosh in this service. Just simply click on that. You'll be able to rewatch the video, pick up where you left off. But most importantly, you'll also be able to go through the drosh slides on your own. That way you can catch up on whatever notes you might have missed or you want to go back and relook at. In addition to that, there is also our notes that we took on this subject listed there as well. It's also in the main menu of our website on notes about Bible and the alcohol. There you can see just straight scripture, straight quotes, straight definitions. You can get all the links for some of the resources that we viewed and researched through um, right there on that notes page. So if you want to get a good head start on your own study, on your own research, that would be a good place to start. You can go check that out at GodHonestTruth.com. You can find the link through the menu at the top or through the post for this drosh and all that you can access even right now as we're speaking. So if you want to go there right now, you can do that also. One more thing I'd like to point out real quick also is there's going to be some things that we're not going to cover tonight. To try to keep it within the scope of just what the Bible says about alcohol, we're not going to be getting into the physical effects of alcohol. We're not going to be getting into the societal effects of alcohol. And neither are we going to be getting into any medicinal benefits that may or may not exist with alcohol. So those are three things that we're not going to be covering. However, they may be mentioned in passing, but it's not our within our scope to go into depth on any th one of those three. In addition, if you'd like to see how exactly alcohol affects the body and has an effect on the body, there is a video on that notes page we just mentioned that goes in detail through the process of what happens when someone consumes alcohol. And as it goes into the mouth, down the esophagus and the stomach, through the blood brain barrier, all that stuff It's very, very informative. And if you're a bit squeamish, you may not want to watch it because they do discuss it using a cadaver. Um, so that may or may not be suitable for you, but it is very, very informative on how alcohol affects a human's body. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, definitely go check it out. And that's on the notes page for our study of Bible and alcohol. So without any further ado, Let's go ahead and get into tonight's drosh. Oh, excuse me. Now, coming from a Baptist background, 
most of the things I heard in my Baptist background in Baptist churches was that drinking alcohol was at the very least wrong and bad, but at worst it was a sin. And we're going to be covering all that as we go through this drosh. So with that in mind and giving my previous history and background, we're actually going to start on scriptures that present alcohol in somewhat of an adverse or negative context in light. Okay. Not only because it's because of my Baptist background, but also because the very first instance or very first mention of alcohol in scripture is in a negative light. And that scripture is all about Noah. Genesis 9, 20 through 21. And Noah, a man of the soil, began and planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered or naked in his tent. So right there, the very first mention of alcohol in scripture, someone goes around in a birthday suit, so to speak. And that was Noah. It was right after he came off the ark, he planted a vineyard, made wine, and then got drunk off of it. Then we also see another negative context when it comes to Lot and his daughters. A lot of you probably already, already may know this, but this comes from Genesis chapter 19, verses 32 through 36. Come, let us make our father drink wine and lie with him, so that we preserve the seed of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she arose. And it came to be on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, See, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight as well, and you go in and lie with him, so that we keep the seed of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night as well. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. So again, another negative aspect that might happen with drinking too much alcohol. Here we have an incestuous relationship happening between Lot and his daughters. But it's not just for Noah or the nephew of Abraham Lot. We also get into it with King David as well. Now, if you remember, King David had an affair, committed adultery with another man's wife. All right. The woman he committed adultery with, her name was Bathsheba and her husband's name was Uriah. Second Samuel eleven twelve through 13. And Dawid said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And Dawid called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. <clears throat> and at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his master, but he did not go down to his house. Now here, David has already committed the sin of adultery with Uriah's wife. But he's trying to cover it up, get away with it. And what he's doing here in this context is he brought Uriah back from the battlefield tried to get Uriah drunk so Uriah would go home, have relations with his wife, and then that way <clears throat> the pregnancy could be you know, pointed towards Uriah, her husband, and not her adulterous affair that she had. 
But Uriah didn't fall for it. It didn't happen that way. Uriah instead stayed with David's uh, servants that night. He didn't go home to his wife. So it kind of blew up in King David's face. So even kings, great men, people who... King David was said to be a man after God's own heart. Even he had a negative run-in or interaction with alcohol trying to cover up his adulterous affair. And there's also more caution that Scripture speaks of when it comes to alcohol. Isaiah 5.11 Woe to those who rise early in the morning, pursuing strong drink, who stay up late at night, wine inflames them. Now notice here, it's speaking of those who pursue or seek out alcohol and stay up long time at night drinking alcohol. Wine inflames them. Isaiah 5, 21 through 23. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to the mighty to drink wine and brave men to mix strong drink, who declare right the wrong for a bribe and the righteousness of the righteous they turn aside from him. So again, another caution on the effects of alcohol from scripture that it could cause you to declare right the wrong. Your inhibitions get you know, shed off sometimes and you do stupid stuff that you normally wouldn't do like declaring right the wrong. Those who are wrong say they're right. Hosea 4.11 Pouring and wine and new wine enslave the heart. And that is a real possibility when it comes to alcohol is that something like alcoholism could develop if you are already prone to getting addicted to stuff, right? Something that could enslave your heart. Another thing to mention right here, that's going to be important coming up later on in the drosh. Here it mentions both wine and new wine. So keep that on your back burner of your mind. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a scoffer, strong drink, I'm sorry, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So again, another caution, being led astray by alcohol, definitely not the wisest thing to do. Proverbs 21, 17. He who loves pleasure is a poor man. He who loves wine and oil does not become rich. Again, another cautionary tale, I guess you could say, about loving wine, seeking wine, being a drunkard or an alcoholic and going after wine, spending all your money on alcohol, as scripture says here, will not let you become rich. Proverbs 23, 29 through 33. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who feels hurt without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those staying long at the wine. Those going in to search out mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it gives its color in the cup as it flows smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and stings like an adder. 
Your eyes look on strange women, and your heart speaks perversities. Now, so much wrapped up in one section of Scripture right here. After the question states who it's talking about here, it's talking about those staying long at the wine, spend a long time drinking, or who go after the wine. They have woe, they have sorrow, they have contentions, they have complaints, they feel hurt without cause, they have redness of eyes. Anyone who's seen anyone drinking, especially for an extended period of time, definitely going to see that redness of eyes, right? Now, also look, it says it gives its color in the cup and do not look on the wine when it is red. Down at the end, it also says your eyes look on strange women and your heart speaks perversities. Again, with the shedding of the inhibitions, one of the effects of too much alcohol causes you to do things you normally would not do and probably shouldn't do. Looking on strange women. Strange women is a lot of times a phrase in scripture meaning prostitutes. Also, speaking perversities. Something you shouldn't do and probably don't do during your normal course of life when you're not drinking. But when you drank too much, you drank for too long, these are the kind of things that can happen in scripture warns us against them right here. Proverbs 31, 4 through 5. Not for sovereigns, O Lemuel, not for sovereigns to drink wine, nor for princes to desire strong drink, lest they drink and forget what is inscribed and pervert the right of all the afflicted. Now here specifically, the context is rulers, kings, and princes, those who are governing, who are passing judgment, right? says for them not to get drunk because they could pervert the right of all the afflicted. But this is something that can also apply to everyone else as well. However, the context here is just for kings and princes, the governing body. 1 Corinthians 5.11. Now we're getting into the Brit shop. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone called a brother if he is If he is one who whores, or greedy of gain, or an idolater, or a reveler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now we're going to get into drunkard a little bit later on, but that word drunkard is different than drunk. Okay, so keep that on the back burner of your mind as well. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the reign of Elohim? Do not be deceived. Neither those who whore, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor greedy of gain, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers shall inherit the reign of Elohim. Again, there's that word drunkard drunkard, and placed in the same category of people as adulterers, as homosexuals, as thieves. Telling you something really important that scripture is trying to tell you here. Okay. Anyone who is a drunkard. Then we'll go to Galatians 5, 19 through 21. 
And the works of the flesh are well known, which are these, adultery, whoring, uncleanness, indecency, idolatry, drug sorcery, hatred, quarrels, jealousies, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, murders, drunkenness, wild parties, and the like, of which I forewarn you, even as I also said before, that those who practice such as these shall not inherit the reign of Elohim. Right? He did say it before. We just read it. Ephesians 5, 17-18 So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the desire of Yahweh is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is loose behavior, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay? Allow the Spirit to control you, not alcohol. Also, notice here he says, do not be drunk with wine. Now, the same word here for wine is also the same word used in other places when it speaks of wine. That's an important point we'll get to in just a little bit later. 1 Timothy 3, 2-3 An overseer, then, should be blameless, the husband of one wife, sober, sensible, orderly, kind to strangers, able to teach, not given to wine, no brawler but gentle, not quarrelsome, no lover of silver. So here, it's talking about someone who should not be given to wine or controlled by alcohol. Someone who's not an alcoholic. Someone who is not a drunkard. 1 Timothy 3.8 Likewise, attendants are to be reverent, not double-tongued, not given too much wine not greedy for filthy gain. He's starting to see the pattern here, right? Not given too much wine. Titus 1.7 For an overseer has to be unreprovable as a managing one of Elohim, not self-pleasing, not wroth, not given to wine, no brawler, not greedy for filthy gain. Again, we're seeing the same kind of theme here. Titus 2, 1-5 But you, speak what is fitting for sound teaching. The older men are to be sober, serious, sensible, sound in belief, in love, in endurance. The older women likewise are to be set apart in behavior, not slanderers, not given too much wine, teachers of what is good, in order for them to train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, blameless workers at home, good, subject to their own husbands, in order that the word of Elohim is not evil spoken of. Now, two things I want to point out here. Number one, this section is also including women, whereas in other sections we've read, it mainly was speaking about men, but could also be applied to everyone in general a lot of times. But here, it's specifically calling out women and older women that they are not to be given too much wine. Again, not drunkards or alcoholics. And number two, here at the beginning of this section, it says the older men are to be sober. An important thing to note right here is the Greek word here for sober doesn't really indicate absence of alcohol in your system. 
Okay. Here, sober means more of the kind where you're sober-minded, temperate, clear-headed, right? That's what it means. Not necessarily specifically just absence of alcohol, okay? 1 Peter 4, 3-5. We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the desires of the nations or Gentiles, having walked in indecencies, lust, drunkenness, orgies, wild parties, and abominable idolatries, in which they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same flood of loose behavior, blaspheming, who shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So here it's talking about our new life, whereas before, when we once were Gentiles, we were doing all these things, which included drunkenness, right? But now that we're not Gentiles anymore, now that we're saved and we're part of Yahweh's kingdom, we're one of Yahweh's children, we no longer belong to things like that and should no longer do stuff like that, like drunkenness. So, as we can clearly see, when we talk about alcohol in the Bible, alcohol in Scripture, we get clear Undeniable warnings from Scripture about the cautions of consuming alcohol. What it can do to us, what sometimes it will do to us, what kings and whatnot shouldn't do. <clears throat> so we're definitely cautioned against what alcohol can do to us. However, you'll notice not once was there a prohibition against Drinking alcohol. Did you get that too? There was no such commandment of the effect of thou shalt not drink alcohol. Okay? Now, with that being said, and since we've now noticed that, we can now go into the, our next section, which includes scriptures that present alcohol in a more upbeat or positive context. We're going to start here with Leviticus 10, 8 through 10. And Yahweh spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tent of appointment, lest you die, a law forever, throughout your generations, so as to make a distinction between the set apart and the profane, and between the clean and the unclean. So, here, you may be thinking, oh, well, this is a prohibition of sorts, but notice here the context. Number one, it's speaking to Aaron and his sons, the Levites, the priesthood, right? And what it's saying here is do not drink wine or strong drink when you go into the tent of appointment. So they should not be consuming alcohol or have alcohol in their system when they're in the performance of their duties. Now, from what we get from Scripture, and especially like from this passage right here, we don't get a prohibition for the priests to not ever drink alcohol, just not in the performance of their duties for the congregation, for the tabernacle, for the temple, for the church, or tent meeting, or what have you. Right? Congregational leaders 
should not have alcohol in their system or drink alcohol during or before they do their duties as congregational leaders. <clears throat> and I think it's wise also to extend that to the laity or those of us who are not in a congregational leadership position to heed the same advice, especially when you're going to a church service or a tent meeting or revival or what have you, right? You're going there to worship Yahweh. You're going there to learn and study and fellowship. So why would you want alcohol to have any possibility of getting in the way of that? Okay. There are other times when you're free I'm sorry, not really free, but when you're not doing stuff like that, of which you can consume it. So it's also good advice that goes to those not in leadership positions to also not consume alcohol during a religious service or before a religious service as well. And we go to Numbers 15.7. And as a drink offering, you bring one-third of a hint of wine as a sweet fragrance to Yahweh. So, <clears throat> here we see as part of the sacrifices during the tabernacle and temple times, part of the sacrifices that were brought included alcohol. And it calls it a sweet fragrance to Yahweh. Interesting, right? Then, Deuteronomy 14, 24 through 26. But when the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to bring the tithe, or when the place where Yahweh your Elohim chooses to put his name is too far from you, when Yahweh your Elohim is blessing you, then you shall give it in silver, and shall take the silver in your hand, and go to the place which Yahweh your Elohim chooses. And you shall use the silver for whatever your being desires, for cattle or sheep, for wine or strong drink, for whatever your being desires. And you shall eat there before Yahweh your Elohim, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. This is very interesting. If you watched our drosh on tithing, <clears throat> this section was actually included in that drosh as well. Because this section is regarding the, I guess you call it secondary tithe, there were two different types of tithes presented in Scripture. The main tithe, the 10%, as most people know it, was given to the temple for the service of the priesthood and their serving of Yahweh and serving of the people and that kind of stuff. The secondary tithe, or the second tithe, was to be put back by each person, especially male, in reserve for the pilgrimage to the temple or tabernacle, which happened three times a year, right? Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And this is what it's talking about here. And it's saying, when the way is too long for you, then take it in silver, take it in a monetary value, and you shall use it for whatever you desire, which would include wine or strong drink. 
And this says, you shall rejoice after doing that. So if it's too long for you, if it's too far away, take that second tithe and buy what you want, including alcohol. Interesting take there. Judges 9.13 And the vine said to them, Shall I leave my new wine, which rejoices mighty ones and men, and go to sway over trees? So here it's talking about wine, making mighty ones and men rejoice as a positive thing. Psalms 104.13-15 Watering the hills from his upper rooms, the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works, causing the grass to grow for the cattle and plants for the service of mankind to bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make the face shine, and bread which sustains man's heart. So here, the psalmist is saying that wine makes the hearts of men glad or happy. Again, speaking positively of alcohol and the effects of alcohol. Proverbs 31, 6 and 7. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and a wine <clears throat> I'm sorry, and wine to those embittered in being. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his trouble no more. So here it's talking about giving alcohol to those who are in a bad situation, those who are actively dying, who are about to die on death row, perhaps, or those who are embittered or impoverished. And it says, let them drink the wine, the strong drink, and forget his problems, forget his poverty. Let him not remember his troubles anymore. So again, alcohol in a positive light from Scripture. Ecclesiastes 9.7 Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a glad heart, for Elohim has already approved your works. So again, wine, drink it with a glad heart. Drink it with a joyous, happy heart. But it's saying, drink it nonetheless, right? Alcohol in a positive context. Now we get into the Brit Hadashah. Luke 10, 33-34. But a certain Shomroni, or Samaritan, journeying came upon him, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And having placed him on his own beast, he brought him to an inn and looked after him. So here we have the tale of the Good Samaritan, right? And the Good Samaritan comes upon the man that's been beaten and robbed, and he treats him in a sense, right? Or as much as he could according to his knowledge and the medicine of the day. But here we see not only oil being used to treat the wound, but also wine, alcohol. Like I said, we're not going to get into the medicinal effects, or at least not deeply, but here we see wine being used for medicinal purposes in a good or positive fashion. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 5.23 
No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent ailments. So again, in a medicinal context, in a positive context, Paul is writing to Timothy saying, no longer drink only water, but also drink some alcohol for your stomach's sake. Luke 5, 37 through 39. This is Yeshua himself speaking here. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine shall burst the wineskins and run out, and the wineskins shall be ruined. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new wine, for he says, the old is better. Now, right off the get-go, let's put it out there, because some of you are probably saying this. Yes, it's a parable, and yes, it's a teaching through metaphor, right? However, he's actually telling the truth here. Because putting new wine into old wineskins will definitely cause them to burst. New wine, which hasn't finished fermenting, will expand, and old wineskins don't give that easy. So they're going to burst. However, new wine put into new wine skins, the new wine skin has some stretchability to it and it will go out with the expanding of that new wine. Also, if it was wrong, if it was a sin to consume alcohol, why would Yeshua use it in a teaching parable? Right? He doesn't, portray adultery in a positive light to teach in a parable. He doesn't use murder in a positive light to teach a parable. Those are grievous sins that he would not use to teach something that people really should know and apply in their lives. So again, he wouldn't use wine if wine was a sin or wrong or something really, really bad. Also, Here's the part you've probably been waiting for and probably know the best. John 2, 2 through 3, and 7 through 10. <clears throat> and both Yeshua and his taught ones were invited to the wedding. And when they were short of wine, the mother of Yeshua said to him, They have no wine. Yeshua said to them, Fill the water jugs with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. But when the master of the feast had tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when they have drunk, then that which is and after they have drunk, then that which is poorer. You have kept the good wine until now. So this is not a parable. This is not a teaching. This actually happened. Yeshua, our Messiah himself, actually provided alcohol for a party. And also notice this. They had already been drinking, and Yeshua provided them with more alcohol, better alcohol. The good stuff, right? It says here, you have kept the good wine until now. 
Okay, we won't get into that, but this notice that that Yeshua did provide alcohol. Okay, we'll get into it just a little bit. Um, some people want to say that all the wine mentioned in Scripture, and especially here at this wedding feast, was not actually alcoholic wine. It was just grape juice. Okay? There are words in Hebrew and in Greek for juice. It's not the words used here. And it's also not the words used by Paul when he said, do not be drunk with wine. Okay? That word for wine that Paul uses is the same word used here for what Yeshua provided the wedding guest. It's the same thing. It's, you can't get drunk off of grape juice. Okay? Paul will not be warning us, do not get drunk off of grape juice. It's actually alcohol. That's why Paul warns us, do not be drunk with wine. And Yeshua here provides alcohol to a party, the alcoholic wine. More into that in a minute. But I want to point out one thing real quick. You notice in our first section that we did tonight that there was no prohibition or commandment against the consumption of alcohol. Now, here is somewhat of an exception, okay? I want to provide you this real quick, just so you know. This has to do with the vow of the Nazarite, and this comes from Numbers 6, 1 through 21. And Yahweh spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man or woman does separate by making a vow of a Nazarite to be separate to Yahweh, he separates himself from wine and strong drink. He drinks neither vinegar of wine nor vinegar of strong drink, neither does he drink any grape juice, nor eat grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation he does not eat whatever is made of the grapevine, from seed to skin. All the days of the vow of his separation, a razor does not come upon his head. Until the days are completed for which he does separate himself to Yahweh, he is set apart. He shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow long. All the days of his separation to Yahweh, he does not go near a dead body. He does not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or his sister, when they die, because his separation to Elohim is on his head. All the days of his separation is set apart to Yahweh. And this is the Torah of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are completed, he is brought to the door of the tent of appointment, and afterwards the Nazarite shall drink wine. Now, notice here back at the beginning, of uh, listing out all the things that go along with the Nazarite vow, one of those things is not consuming alcohol, okay? Whether that be alcohol wine, which they would regularly drink and were familiar with, nor vinegar, which wine can sometimes turn into if it's not stored properly or over ferments or whatnot. But he's to stay away from anything concerning the grapevine. Raisins, vinegar, wine, grape juice, here it actually says grape juice and says wine in the same context. So we know there's a difference between wine and grape juice. And when scripture says wine, it means wine, alcohol. 
When it says grape juice, it means grape juice. Okay. But this is something that could be considered a prohibition for those who have taken the vow of a Nazarite. They cannot consume alcohol. However, when the period of their vow is completed and they're done with their Nazarite vow, then they shall drink wine. That's almost like a commandment to consume alcohol at that point. Judge for yourselves. There's the scriptures. Now, there were some very notable Nazarites that you probably already know from scripture. However, you may not have known that they were Nazarites or under a Nazarite vow. First of all, the prophet Samuel was a Nazarite. Samson was a Nazarite as well. All the days of his life, he was a Nazarite. So Samuel and Samson did not drink alcohol. This is a little bit of a yeah, sort of kind of, but not really. The Rechabites mentioned in Jeremiah, they did not drink alcohol, but they weren't really Nazarites. They were kind of Nazarites, but not really. They didn't take a vow, but their ancestors told them way back when, you know, do these things, which included stay away from alcohol. Then we have John the Baptizer, commonly known nowadays as John the Baptist. All the days of his life, he was under the vow of a Nazarite. We also have Paul in Acts taking a Nazarite vow. Now, this is temporary for Paul, like a lot of other people who took vow of a Nazarite. But Paul, for a time, was a Nazarite, and he would not have drank alcohol. Now, remember one of those things I told you to put on the back burner? This is the subject or the word of drunkard or drunkenness. So remember back when we looked at 1 Corinthians 5.11, it states, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone called a brother, if he is one who whores or greedy of gain or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard. Okay, so what does drunkard actually mean? Well, a drunkard is someone who is habitually drunk. Okay, not just once, not just every once in a while. Okay, it's someone who regularly, consistently gets drunk. And again, a drunkard is one who is habitually drunk, a person who is frequently or habitually drunk, a person who is habitually drunk. This is not a one-off thing. This is not a every now and then thing. This is someone who has a pattern of getting drunk on a regular basis. The Greek English lexicon of the New Testament states, a person who habitually drinks too much and thus becomes a drunkard. Drunkard or heavy drinker. Greek word here, methusos. Now, what's the difference between a drunkard and an alcoholic? Well, wikidiff.com states it as this. As nouns, the difference between drunkard and alcoholic is that drunkard is somewhat derogatory, a person who is habitually drunk, while alcoholic is a person who is addicted 
to alcohol. So there's the difference. It may be, you know, somewhat nuanced, but that's the difference between a drunkard and an alcoholic. So now you know what drunkard means in scripture, like in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the reign of Elohim? Do not be deceived, neither those who whore, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor greedy of gain, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the reign of Elohim. So anyone who is an unrepentant drunkard, someone who habitually gets drunk, will not go into the reign of Yahweh. Good news, though. Just like with homosexuals, thieves, adulterers, idolaters, drunkards can also be redeemed, be forgiven, change their life around, be forgiven, and be able to actually go into the reign of Yahweh. Drunkards and the rest of these people can get forgiveness, but if they continue in their ways and they're unrepentant for it, then yeah, they're not going to go into heaven or the reign of Yahweh. Now, let's get into some of those misconceptions that we kind of hinted at earlier. First one we're going to get on to is juice versus fermented. Is the wine they talk about in scripture, is it just grape juice or is it actually fermented alcoholic beverage? Okay. The argument goes something like this. This comes from amazingfacts.org. And it says, The word wine in the Bible sometimes refers to the new or fresh juice of the grape. Other times it is used to describe the aged or fermented product containing the drug alcohol. <laughs> no, not really, but let's go on. We can see... From scripture, there's words for grape juice and there's words for wine, okay? And when it means wine, it means alcoholic beverage wine, not grape juice, okay? Even the phrase new wine refers to alcohol as well. New wine is something that may have a barely noticeable or low alcoholic content, but as it sits and it ages and it continues to ferment, it will increase in its alcoholic content. Back during the day, women and children were not given alcohol. They were actually given grape juice, as a matter of fact. We can get this from a couple of sources, and we're going to go over those real quick. First one is going to come from Plato, and this comes from laws, and I know some people kind of come against this, but this comes from the time, so let's reference it real quick. Here it says, no children under 18 may touch wine at all. The young man under 30 may take wine in moderation, but that he must entirely abstain from intoxication and heavy drinking. But when a man has reached the age of 40, he may join in the convivial gatherings as a medicine potent against the crabbedness of old age, that thereby we men may renew our youth, and that though through forgetfulness of care, the temper of our souls may lose its hardness and become softer and more ductile, even as iron when it has been forged in the fire. So here during Plato's time, they regarded wine as alcoholic, as intoxicating. 
because it refers to, I'm sorry. In the second part, it says that the young man under 30 may take wine in moderation, but he must entirely abstain from intoxication. So again, referencing that wine actually does have intoxicating effects. Therefore, it's not actually grape juice, as some may claim. Also, the first part, it references that no children under 18 may touch wine at all for this express purpose. To not be intoxicated, not be affected by the alcohol in the wine. So again, talking about alcoholic beverage, wine, not grape juice. Again, from Plato and Laws. I am now referring not to the drinking or non-drinking of wine generally, but to drunkenness, pure and simple. Again, it mentions wine, mentions drunkenness in the same context. Okay? Again, referencing that wine was alcoholic and not just grape juice as some claim. Others would also point to references from people like Pliny the Elder as saying that, oh, wine can also mean just grape juice, non-alcoholic, okay? But Dr. R.A. Baker has this to say. Oh, we didn't touch on that. Sorry. Forgot to take it out. But Dr. Baker states this. Most articles I have found on this topic refer to Columella and Pliny the Elder both of these ancient writers do spend a good deal of time describing how to keep and store wine, but not to keep it from fermenting. A close reading reveals that Columella's real concern, reflecting that of the ancient world, was to keep the wine from too much fermentation, becoming vinegar. He, referring to Pliny the Elder, is not concerned about trying to keep grape juice from becoming wine. His concern was to keep wine from spoiling into vinegar and becoming useless as a beverage. So some people may reference people like Pliny the Elder saying that wine just means grape juice, but that's not the truth. Okay. When these people like Pliny the Elder are referencing wine, they actually mean wine and the storage methods they're using is to keep it from over fermenting, not preventing it from fermenting. See the difference? Then we look at Acts 2, verses 6, 13, and 15. And when this sound came to be, the crowd came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And others mocking said, they have been filled with wine. For these men are not drunk, as you imagine, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now, again, in the same vein of, well, it's just grape juice. It's not actually wine. They'll say that the sweet wine mentioned in scripture is referring to grape juice, not alcohol. But that's not true, as we can see from these scriptures here. This is when the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles in the upper room. They started speaking in tongues, right? And they went out and they were speaking to everyone there in the crowd. And everyone in the crowd from various backgrounds, from various areas around the known world spoke different languages and they were hearing each of these apostles speak in their own native tongue. And some of them thought that they had hit the bottle, right? So to speak, they said that they had been filled with sweet wine. Okay. So the sweet wine mean 
grape juice, non-alcoholic, or wine, alcoholic. Says, for these men are not drunk. Okay, so obviously it's referring to an alcoholic wine, not grape juice. Otherwise, they wouldn't be having to correct the people in telling them that these apostles, they're not drunk. So it's just as simple as that. There are words for grape juice. There are words for wine. Wine always means of the alcoholic type. Now, another misconception that some people have about alcohol, that consuming alcohol is a sin. For instance, from BibleAnalysis.com, is drinking alcohol a sin? The very short and simple answer is Drinking alcohol is a sin. Then from Billy Graham, the Bible condemns the use of any substance which alters or distorts our thinking, excuse me, including alcohol, which was the most common drug in ancient times. Okay, we just went through the scriptures on alcohol, and granted, we didn't include every single one, but there is no scripture in the Bible that states do not drink alcohol. So Billy Graham is wrong on this one. From the Southern Baptist Convention, from their convention in 2006, that's the newest one I could find. It says, Resolved that the messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention express our total opposition to the consuming of alcoholic beverages, and be it further resolved that we urge that no one be elected to serve as a trustee or member of any entity or committee of the Southern Baptist Convention that is a user of alcoholic beverages. Now, does their resolution, does their protocols, policy, as it were, conform to Scripture? Now, we saw from Scripture that overseers, deacons, elders, attendants, were not to be given to wine, not to be alcoholics, not to be drunkards. There was no prohibition against alcohol at any time for them. Southern Baptist Convention takes it a step further, saying that they can't ever use alcohol. From the United Methodist Church, 2016 resolution, the newest one I could find from them, and it states, we oppose the sale and consumption of alcoholic beverages within the confines of United Methodist Church facilities and recommended that it be prohibited. Okay. Maybe I got this wrong, but I found it to be a two-prong resolution here. The first one being that forbid and oppose the consumption and sale within the Methodist facilities. Okay, all good with that. I can see that actually going with Scripture where it states for the leaders of the congregation, the priests, Levites, whatever, not to consume alcohol before performing their duties, right? We covered that. So, opposing the sale and consumption on Methodist property, hey, we can. I can go with that. That's fine. But it also says that we oppose the sale and consumption and recommend that it be prohibited. I take that as a general everywhere, not just Methodist facilities, but everywhere prohibition. And that 
is not in line with Scripture because there is no prohibition against the consumption or sale of alcohol in Scripture. Now, when talking about what is a sin and what isn't a sin, and especially in this specific context of whether or not drinking alcohol is a sin, we need to keep in mind what is sin. How does Scripture define what sin is? Let's refresh. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone doing sin also does lawlessness or torlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So again, straight from Scripture, sin is defined as breaking of the Torah, breaking of the commands of Yahweh. Again, we went through the verses, we saw Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. There is no prohibition in all of Scripture against the consumption of alcohol. Not in a general sense anyways. Like I said, for the Nazarites, for the priests, and forms of their duties, it is there, but not in general. So therefore, the consumption of, consumption of alcohol, again, in general, is not a sin. Plain and simple. However, there are some things that I would like to bring up for you to take note of. Romans 13.1 Let every being be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from Elohim, and the authorities that exist are appointed by Elohim. So, how can we apply that to our lives? Number one, no underage drinking. Okay? Most laws that I know of here in the United States prohibit the purchase and consumption of alcoholic beverages by anyone under 21. Okay? So, if you're under 21 and you buy or consume alcohol, not only are you breaking the law, but I'm going to go this far and say that you are actually going against Scripture as well. No driving intoxicated. Okay? Yeah, it's dangerous. It has, again, we're not going to get into depth on all this, but it has physical effects to you. Dangerous physical effects to you. Dangerous physical effects to other people. And it's against the law. So again, if you drive while under the influence, while intoxicated, not only are you breaking the law, but I'll go this far and say also that you are going against Scripture. You're breaking Scripture. Because we just read the Scripture, right? Okay, like I said, going on an hour and a half now. I told you it's going to be long. Now, if you happen to miss anything, again, check out the post starting tomorrow morning for the on-demand version on our website, www.godhonesttruth.com to catch up on any part that you may have missed, as well as check out the notes about this subject, Bible and alcohol. So in summary, when is alcohol consumption prohibited? Well, we saw it was for congregational leaders during the performance of their duties, for anyone under a Nazarite vow, uh, didn't cover the scripture and really meant to have it in there, but Paul tells us not to do anything that would cause a brother to stumble, right? And that would include drinking of alcohol. If someone is a recovering alcoholic, then you should not drink in front of them, right? Because it could cause them to stumble and fall back into alcoholism. So that would be a sort of prohibition right there, right? But only during that specific situation. 
should not drink or it's prohibited for you to drink if you were underage according to the laws of where you live. Another prohibition, not driving under the influence. Okay? Those are the prohibitions that I can think of that we can derive from Scripture, but there is no general blanket overarching do not drink commandment that we get from Scripture. So who is allowed to drink? Well, pretty much everyone else that does not fall under one of these prohibitions that we listed out here. Now, you may be thinking, we saw that it wasn't prohibited, so therefore, is it commanded? Well, no, not really. It never really says, thou shalt drink alcohol, thou shalt drink wine, right? It doesn't really happen. You don't see that in Scripture. So it's not commanded, but it's not prohibited either, okay? It's left up to each person according to their own conscience. So to summarize everything going on here, Scripture does not prohibit the consumption of alcohol. However, habitual drunkenness, a drunkard, is prohibited. We covered that, right? And drinking alcohol is a matter of conscience, but it's not required. If you don't want to drink alcohol ever, or you want, don't want to drink alcohol ever again, that's fine. You're going right along with Scripture. But if you do choose to drink alcohol moderately, responsibly, and not be a drunkard, then you're also you know, within scripture. And that's just the God honest truth. I'd like to leave you with this verse or section of verses real quick as well, because I think it's really ties into everything we've talked about here. First Corinthians 10, 29 through 31. Now I say conscience, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for what I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the esteem of Elohim. Now, in context, this passage comes from Paul's teaching about food sacrificed to idols, but it definitely applies to the topic of alcohol in the Bible because he also mentions here whatever you eat or drink is according to your conscience. Okay, don't judge others based on your own conscience when Scripture says that they're okay to do that. Let them do that if they are free to do that according to Scripture. And if you're free not to do it, then don't do it. But don't judge them based on your own conscience. And don't let others, I'm sorry, don't allow others to judge you in that same respect as well. So I'd like to thank everyone for joining us tonight. Hopefully you got something out of it. Like always, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or if we happen to miss anything, please give us a shout out to team at godhonesttruth.com or leave us a comment down below. We'll do our best to answer you in a timely and orderly fashion. In just a moment, we'll be doing our Aaronic benediction. So if you have anyone there with you that you would like to gather around next to you when we do that go ahead and start gathering them around and while you're doing that also go down below hit that like button hit that share button and hit the subscribe button and also ring the bell as well that way you get the notifications and leave us a comment something like 
hey, I like this about tonight's service, or I didn't like this about tonight's service, you know, what have you, or just say Shabbat Shalom, because we always love hearing from you guys. So with all that being said, let's go ahead and get into our Aaronic benediction. Yivarecha Yahweh, Vayishmarecha. Yahweh Yahweh Panavilecha, Vichunecha. Yisah Yahweh Panavilecha, Vayasimlecha. Shalom. May Yahweh bless you and guard you. May Yahweh make his face shed light upon you and be gracious unto you. May Yahweh lift up his face unto you and give you peace. Thank you once again for joining us tonight. We hope that your Shabbat is one filled with lots of rest and lots of good food, lots of good family. We hope that your next upcoming week is also filled with good food, good family, good friends, good fortunes, good health good spirits. And until we meet again next time, make sure to take care of yourselves, take care of each other. Shabbat Shalom and Shavua Tov. Yeah.